Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radiolab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know, wherever you get podcasts. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry, and this is The Takeaway. Today, we've got another edition of our Black History Month special, Black Queer Rising. It's been 17 years, and uh, I need to make sure she hear this. I've been living in my own little world Underground till I found you, girl You, you know you sweeter than trees have Oh, the cicada, always getting a bad rap. That big-eyed, noisy bug that sometimes emerges in mass from the ground every 17 years, but really it's around every summer. Now, it doesn't harm people, but it captivates us with those loud chirps and swarm-like movements. So come on, get on the cicada safari app. I'm climbing a tree. And as you can hear from his singing, this guy kind of loves cicadas and lots of other insects too. As he told the Today Show, we might all be feeling a little more connected to the cicada as a result of our pandemic experiences. We've been in isolation for what feels like 17 years. They've been in isolation for 17 years. What do you want to do immediately upon leaving? See people. I want to see everybody. Right. These cicadas are doing the same thing. This is cicada spring break right now. My name is Samuel Ramsey. I'm the endowed professor of entomology at the University of Colorado Boulder and also the founder and director of the Ramsey Research Foundation. What is entomology? Oh, we're jumping into the big questions first. (laughs) Entomology, my favorite thing to tell my students is that entomology is the study of diversity. And the reason why I say this is because three quarters of the animals on this planet are insects. And entomology is the study of insects. There is no more diverse group of organisms on this entire planet than bugs. And so if you really want to study what diversity is, you need to look at the most diverse creatures, the creatures who have learned to solve all of life's problems with as many different tools as possible. Okay, I know there are big bugs and small bugs that there are. um, (laughs) There are black bugs and white bugs. Um, Mm -hmm. Are there woke bugs and conservative bugs? Oh, my goodness. Are there woke bugs and conservative bugs? Uh, Insects are certainly organisms that lack an overarching sense of morality as we understand it, um, as, as best we understand their situation. So we try not to anthropomorphize them too much, but they do have these complex, fascinating social societies. Um, People were really shocked to find out that insects do some of the the things that we do that we uh, are very aware of as problematic behavior. So there are insects that make slaves. There are slave-making ants that literally raid other colonies, uh, confiscate the workers, and raise them as slaves to serve their queen. Uh, There are insects that are mass murderers and cannibals. And so they're definitely problematic uh, elements in there. Um, but I don't think that there is a moral judgment to it. Evolution just drives things forward to make sure that species are propagated. Dr. Sammy, I don't know if I'm gonna be able to sleep tonight knowing that there yeah. are slave making insects and mass yeah. murdering ones. 
I probably should. Are there told you are that. there are there the, those insects whose social rules for propagation end up creating collaborative or collective networks? There certainly are, and thank you for asking about those because I really would like for them to take the forefront of these conversations. I work primarily with social insects. Social insects have done something absolutely remarkable. They have developed a system where they are capable of all working together towards a common goal in which they will give up some of their own rights such that the collective is able to be more successful. So people are always really surprised when I tell them that uh, social insects like bees and ants will uh, socially distance when they get uh, a communicable illness, because there is an awareness that if they can get this illness, that the closely related individuals all around them could also get this illness. And so instead of remaining in close contact with everyone, they'll go off to their own little corner for a while. And if they don't get over that ailment, they'll go as far away from the colony as possible and live out the rest of their days in isolation. And we didn't quite get that all right during the pandemic. And it's fascinating that creatures with a brain the size of a quarter of a grain of rice have already got that down. Dr. Samuel, you now you got the bees over here wearing masks and, and getting their <laughs> vaccination and boosters. Listen, you're about to turn me into an entomologist. And and my understanding is that there is a little bit of that goal for you that that you feel like a bug ambassador. Tell me oh, about yeah. that. Oh my goodness. I, I I developed a love of insects when I was really young. And so I feel like I've had a lot of time to figure out what works. And what doesn't work? Because people always ask me, why do you want to be an entomologist? Why would anybody make that choice in life? And they've been asking me that since I was seven years old. And so I've always had to have an answer. And I've tried a bunch of different ones. Some of them didn't work, but it refined my ability to communicate this kind of information. I've learned all of these random facts that I love throwing out in different contexts. And I know the ones that tend to make people's eyes widen and that spark of curiosity gets going. And so it, it makes me feel like I'm truly an ambassador for the bugs because I've learned the things that I can say to people that connect them to these organisms, that let them actually see for the very first time that these creatures aren't so different from them, have similar motivations, and it allows people to feel connected to a world that they usually rarely think about. You mentioned um, some of the things that we as humans did not get so right, um, and still are maybe not getting so right about our social and collective lives, particularly in the context of communicable disease. Can you talk to me right now about the work you're doing and the pandemic that bees are facing? Mm, I can. I can talk to you about that. So there is a pandemic that is currently going around the world, causing organisms to have to distance from uh, the individuals closest to them. And it may sound like I am talking about COVID-19. But there is a pollinator pandemic out there. There is a, a pandemic of infectious parasitic mites that, have, that attach themselves to the bodies of bees uh, and sometimes other pollinators and cause a whole range of issues by liquefying the liver of the bees. Yes, bees have a liver um, and sucking that out of their bodies. And that, as you might guess, uh, if you were to think about this in your own life, is something that is not good for these organisms. Well, it's led to 
just this mass set of issues um, that are contributing to the fact that we see um, uh, close to half of our bees in the U.S. dying every single year. Uh, we lose about 50% of our colonies, somewhere between a third and half uh, on average every single year. And that is an unsustainable amount of losses, but that's the pandemic that our pollinators are currently in. And during the pandemic that we all just went through as human beings, I think we did recognize something. There was a lesson to be learned there that we could have tackled this situation with much more knowledge and potentially more lives could have been saved if we had understood this virus before it showed up and caused all of these problems. But when it was first emerging, we thought of it as someone else's problem. It was over there. It wasn't our issue. Well, unfortunately, we're doing something similar with our pollinators. There are a number of different potential emerging diseases that could become the next pandemic for our bees. Uh, we could have a twindemic while there's, where they would be suffering from multiple pandemics at the same time. Uh, and we're letting that be a thing that we wait for to arrive at our doorstep before we study it. Um, I've actually pitched this big project where we create this compendium of all the different diseases that currently exist uh, for our pollinators in Southeast Asia. Why Southeast Asia? Well, because that's the region of the world where there are more species of honeybees than anywhere else uh, on the planet. Uh, every species of honeybee that exists, exists in Southeast Asia. And that's also the reason why emerging diseases show up there as well and then spread around the world. So if we can better understand them there uh, and compile all the different ways that they could potentially be managed, that set of knowledge can do so much good for us. And so my goal is to compile all of that knowledge. Currently, I'm in Singapore. I just left Thailand. I was in India before that. Um, gathering data, collecting these specimens. Uh, we're doing genetic testing on all of them and learning about all of the different um, symbiotic relationships that they have and bacteria and viruses. And then I'm going to make all of this information available, open access, so that everyone in all of these different countries can access this information and more healthily manage their population of bees. Stay right there. We're going to have more Black Queer Rising with entomologist Dr. Sammy Ramsey. Every memory you think you have of the past. The house you grew up in, your first kiss. It's not simply an idea. It's a physical trace left in your brain. I own those memories. They define me. But what happens when those memories are stolen from you? In the blink of an eyelid. Can you imagine it's right to have one night 20 years long? That's what it's been like. Just like this. Memory and Forgetting on Radiolab. Listen wherever you get podcasts. We're back and still talking with entomologist Dr. Sammy Ramsey about what the biodiversity of insects can teach us. It's all part of our conversation series, Black Queer Rising. Now, Dr. Sammy is founder of the Ramsey Research Center, which has been looking at communicable diseases in bees and plans to make all of their findings accessible to the public. So I talked with Dr. Sammy about the value of open access research in science. I see it as so valuable because knowledge is power. And open access publishing could help us level a playing field um, that currently is not level. There are dramatic imbalances in power based on the information that people have access to. So most publications 
are published in journals where we pass the payments on to the people who want to read that information. So we put uh, a, a barrier, um, a financial barrier between people and truth. And that's a fascinating decision for us to make because all of the lies are available for free on the internet. As a matter of fact, there is an algorithm that will funnel those lies into your face day in and day out, but we make people pay for the truth. And the issue there being, uh, if individuals don't have the money to afford it, they simply cannot access that truth. And so this makes it difficult for individuals in developing economies, is the term we typically use, um, to access this kind of information. It makes it harder for them to conduct research without being able to see the papers that have already been published. It also creates distance between the general public and science. I think that more people would be engaged with the scientific process, would trust scientists, and would understand science if they can more easily access that information. There's also an issue of equity because our uh, m much of this research is funded by taxpayers, but then taxpayers have to pay money to then access it. So all of the work that's conducted through the Ramsey Research Foundation, through my nonprofit, uh, will be available open access. We're also gearing up uh, to start um, uh, making grants available to any other individuals who want to publish work open access um, to pay the huge fees on the front end that the journals pass on to the researchers if we want to publish it open access. And those fees can be in the thousands of dollars, um, which is why I think that this initiative will be really helpful for a lot of people. Biology, science, this notion of what constitutes the natural, the created, Oh, it has been central to discourse and politics mm -hmm. around queer folk. Um, mm -hmm. Really, um, as as a core aspect of sort of the political fight has been this language about what is natural and what is biological, what we see in nature. I want you to do a couple things for me. First of all, talk to me about where we see nature queer and the queering of our notions of biology and of the natural. And talk to me a bit about maybe the surprise that some folks have to discover social, political, human lessons in scientific study. <laughs> so as a scientist, I get this awesome vantage point where I can see all of these different things that are going on in the world around us that a lot of other people often don't get to see. And I think in entomology, I get to see even more of that because entomology is the study of diversity. Um, so entomology is literally the study of insects, but insects are the most diverse. And something that you see is that the most successful group of organisms on this planet it's the most diverse group of organisms on this planet, and there's no coincidence there. Figuring out all of these different ways to exist in a space, this, this, this matter of diversity allows creatures to thrive because they can all specialize in different things. Um, they can make an ecosystem work in remarkable different ways. Uh, and that's something that really reflects um, on us as humans. When we think about what we value, oftentimes, we want people to behave the same way. We want to remove a context of diversity because diversity makes us uncomfortable, but diversity is actually the greatest strength that we have access to because it allows us so many different ways of solving problems. 
And so when I think about the queerness of the science that I study, it is something that reminds me that when we choose not to accept the beauty of diversity, we do ourselves a disservice. And one of the one of the facets of my own diversity is something that I had a difficult time accepting myself. Um, as a queer person raised by two pastors, uh, it was very difficult for me to accept the fact that I am gay, um, that a lot of people aren't going to to like that very much, but also my perspective um, on 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 God, my perspective on religion, my perspective on acceptance consistently left me with the impression that I could not accept myself and still be the kind of person that I wanted to be or accepted in the ways that I wanted to be. Um, I've since learned that that isn't the case. Um, I have to be myself in order to be genuine and authentic. And I bring something to everything that I do now that is unique because of the multifaceted identity that I bring to it. It allows me to think differently about the problems that need to be solved. It allows me to, to see the world in a slightly different way that causes me to ask different questions and that allows me to arrive at different answers. And that is valuable. And yet that value can make for a pretty hard road. Can you tell me the extent to which you have, or maybe just talk to me a bit about, um, you know, I, I, I'm trying to phrase this because I sort of hate the question. Tell me about the struggle you've had and how you've overcome them. <laughs> um, I guess, I guess what I'm, what I'm looking for here is um, trying to understand the ways that, in your pursuit of knowledge, um, in your commitments to things like open access, um, in your simple joy and infectious joy around <laughs> entomology, um, and all of that in a black queer body and identity. Um, what has that meant for how you do the work that you do? So what it means for how I do the work that I do, it means that I've learned to value accepting myself in all of the different facets that I exist in at the same time. I used to exist in a space where code switching was such a normal thing for me that I didn't even notice that I was doing it anymore. It was just entirely natural. It would happen all the time. And since I've learned, I just want to be all of me at the same time. That makes for a unique individual rather than someone who's simply reflecting one element of who he is and one, uh, one group of people that he's talking to and then a different element with a different group of people. If I just bring all of those together at the same time, that, that, all that multiplicity of things makes me unique and that uniqueness brings a skill set to the table that allows me to look at problems differently and manage uh, these situations in a way that uh, may not come naturally to other people. Uh, so it allows me to face my work, uh, my work in the lab. Uh, I'm able to think about problems differently and approach them from a different direction and it allows me to reach different answers. What I discussed with you earlier about how the parasite um, attaches to the honeybees and sucks out their liver for decades, uh, more than half a century. We thought that this parasite was just feeding on the bee's blood, and it was an unquestioned um, conclusion in this system. And by me approaching this situation, looking at it differently, um, not necessarily because I'm I'm just smarter than the, the the people who are looking at this this sort of situation before. I don't think that's actually the case. Uh, I think it's simply that I was able to approach this as a very different 
uh, person from a very different way of thinking, uh, and it allowed me to ask the questions differently and thus arrive at a different answer um, that's helped us see this parasite in a way that will likely allow us to manage it better in the future. Our conversation is part of our ongoing series, Black Queer Rising. So I'll end this conversation as I do all of my conversations within the Black Queer Rising series. What does Black Queer Rising mean to you? What does Black Queer Rising mean to me? Black Queer Rising, it reminds me of Maya Angelou's poem, Still I Rise because it reminds me that all of us, <laughs> all of us have been through this. You may write me down in history with your bitter, twisted lies. You may trod me in the very dirt, but still like dust, I rise. So many of us have been trodden down in this process. We have been made to feel like we're less than, been made to feel like dust. Uh, and knowing that that capacity to rise to the occasion is embedded in our identity. It allows us to exist in this space in a way that makes us um, a consistent theme that cannot be ignored. Um, as a Black queer person, people have tried to push my identity away. They've tried to bifurcate it, section it out, but still I rise. I won't be quiet. Uh, I won't allow people to force me into a category that isn't fully and entirely and authentically me. No. I am going to rise. Dr. Samuel Ramsey is founder and director of the Ramsey Research Foundation. Dr. Sammy, thank you for joining us today. I'm so delighted that you've given me this opportunity to rise.